Welcome to another episode of Life Across Borders, a World Relief miniseries. Jose Serrano immigrated to the United States with his family when he was a kid. Today, he works as the Associate Director of Immigration and Outreach and a Senior Immigration Services Specialist at World Relief Southern California. In this episode, he shares his story and talks about the complexities that come with immigration and gaining legal status in the United States. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining. I'm really glad that you're here today. I'm Karen Bryant, World Relief's Changemaker Team Lead. I work with a group of donors here. And at World Relief, we have 16 offices across the United States, where one of our very top priorities is working to create welcoming communities for refugees and other immigrants. We do that in a variety of ways through welcoming refugee families as they arrive in the United States at the airports, furnishing new homes. We have job training classes, English language classes, women's groups, youth groups. There's a lot of stuff. Um, Today, we're gonna talk about our legal services. And joining me is Jose Serrano from our Southern California office. Jose, thank you for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I want to get his titles correct because he has a lot of them. (laughs) Jose is Associate Director of Immigration and Outreach, Senior Immigration Services Specialist, and a Department of Justice Accredited Representative. He's resettled over 600 refugees, which is just astounding to me, Mm -hmm. very impressive, and has represented asylum seekers throughout their cases. So Jose, welcome. And if you can maybe just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do day to day at World Relief. Thank you, Karen. I'm so excited and and thank you for all the viewers who are present at this time, who are taking their time to just really learn a little bit more about immigration, um, what that looks like as far as the work that World Relief does, um, especially as we accompany families and work alongside of you to make uh, the United States a more welcoming place for everyone. Um, my name is, again, Jose Serrano. I'm the product of uh, uh, hardworking parents who migrated to the United States in the late 90s, um, or as someone said, in the late 1900s. And so um, we came to the United States, um, you know, my parents, uh, we grew up in a small town uh, where there was very little, if any, running water. Um, electricity was not as, uh, as available, right? And so my father, and my grandparents had already been in the United States uh, in the 60s, 70s um, as, as agricultural workers. And so in the 90s, they decided, hey, it's like we, we don't see um, any other opportunities for you in, in Mexico. We really want you and your sister to, to have that opportunity that we didn't have, meaning them, uh, to really um, just bring the best gifts out of us and our natural talents and, and really pursue a higher education. And so um, in the 90s, we migrated to the United States and uh, found ourselves without status for a while. My parents, though, they did have an application, a family-based petition that was filed um, by, by a relative of my dad, uh, a brother, but the waiting time to get the visa just to become available was over 20 years. And so I think our, our story, a, a multi-status household, because then we, we also had uh, two siblings, additional to my sister and I, um, who were US citizens, but half of us were undocumented and my other siblings had documents. And so we were a multi-status household. And so I think what was really interesting um, living undocumented in a multi-status household is there was always a, a conversation, right? Or the rhetoric of like, well, why don't you do it the right way? 
And the interesting thing is like, we were waiting for over 20 years before that visa became available, right? And let's not even go into the details of like just the other processes that you must also go through um, in order for you to become a resident. Um, it's not like going to the DMV, you know, you get behind the wheel, take the exam and write a test. That's not how it works at all. And so this will be a really great opportunity to a little bit to learn more about sort of what that process looks like. But yeah, my parents are extremely hardworking. Like any parent, they wanted the best for the children. Um, I was able to go to a four-year university, UCLA to be exact, and pursue uh, double degrees in uh, political science and Chicano Chicano studies. Um, and given my experience as an undocumented uh, person, um, I really wanted to give back to the community because I know how hard it's been and how hard it was uh, to navigate systems um, or to live in the shadows or to be told that you are this and not that, um, or to even have, for people to have a tainted perception of who immigrants are. And so um, I'm the example of, 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 of hardworking immigrants who want the best, um, who bring so many uh, opportunities and resources and uh, just create diversity and, and create change and, and bring innovative ideas to the United States. So that's who I am. Thank you for sharing that. It's interesting. How do you feel like an organization like World Relief could have impacted or helped your family when you first came here? You know, I think World Relief provides so many great resources, right? We not only have a program that's caters to refugees, so individuals who come with a category and a status, uh, but we also have an immigration legal services program uh, that creates an opportunity for folks who do not have status or perhaps who overstay visas. Because we have to remember that oftentimes when we're talking about undocumented folks or individuals, it's people who came in with visas and they happen to overstay the visa because there was probably persecution abroad or just other pushed factors or pulled factors that we don't really discuss um, that have forced them to stay in the United States um, and gave them no other alternative. And so when we're talking about undocumented, it's important to, to note that, that it is actually documented individuals that came to the United States who overstayed and found themselves with no status. And so World Relief provides an immigration legal services program uh, to many of, of uh, within the many offices that we have in the United States, which gives us an opportunity to assess cases, right? It gives us an opportunity to discuss and see if there are avenues or pathways towards residency and from residency to, residency to citizenship. Um, it just happens to be, we have fragmented pieces of policy that sometimes create opportunity for uh, some and then it really marginalizes others. And so we end up having undocumented populations that don't want to be undocumented, right? There has never been a person in my uh, in, the, in the 10 years that I've been working in the immigration field that says, hey, I, you know, I, I wanna be undocumented, you know, please like don't tell me about the opportunities that I have because I just wanna not pay taxes. No, if anything, a big contribution of the economy in the United States, and this is statistically proven, comes from the undocumented population. And so it's not only individuals who are contributing economically, but again, they bring diversity, they bring innovative ideas. And uh, that's something that's really important to think about, especially as we have different administrations, different leaders in our community who are presenting bills uh, to make or hopefully create an opportunity for everyone to feel welcome. Yeah, and we're, we're gonna talk about some of those policy changes in a little bit here. 
Um, but let me take just a step back in case we have folks listening who aren't familiar with the differences between documented, undocumented status, um, refugee, and asylum seeker. Can you talk just a little bit about that briefly? Yes, excellent. So refugees is an individual that has been displaced uh, both internally and uh, internally and then ultimately has been forced out of their, their, their country of origin. And so what ends up happening is that they are applying for this category or protective status called refugee status. Um, refugees usually before they can get any uh, entry into the United States um, or be resettled as what we call it here in, in the US, um, they must go through the UNHCR, which is United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees Program or entity. It's usually found at the United Nations. So they leave their country of origin, right? So immigration already begins. They have to leave their country of origin. Usually, and actually never, it seems like you can never really apply for uh, displacement or refugee status within your country of origin. Uh, you have to leave your country of origin. And then you must need to demonstrate that you've been displaced because of any of the five reasons, political association, right? Your religion or your faith, right? Um, nationality or um, uh, your ethnic group uh, or particular social group, um, or also even um, just an association that you identify with. And so given those categories, you don't have to necessarily be persecuted on all, uh, um, uh, all five of them, but one or the other, and you need to provide evidence. And so there is a system that's been in place where the people, officers, Department of Homeland Security, and all of these different entities that work together uh, do an assessment to verify that what you're saying is truthful. And so once you are go through the process, the interview process, and, and they find your, your fear credible and they give you the category, then they bring you into the United States with the category, so, so with lawful status already. Asylum seekers, it's the exact same thing. The only difference is that they're not going through UNHCR. They're coming to any part of the US border, which is something to really focus on. Asylum law at no point said, a person must go through a port of entry, meaning like a place where you, uh, an officer works. They can present themselves in the middle of the ocean. They can present themselves at the middle of the desert. They can come to a port of entry. They can be flying into the United States with a visa and say, hey, I'm afraid to return to my country. I am applying for asylum or I want asylum. That's what asylum is. They, 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 they seek asylum because of the same factors, but it's usually at the country where they're seeking refuge at. So we have refugees, asylum or asylum seekers, right? Then the other category is individuals who are undocumented. Right? This population is a multi, I don't want to say multi-status, but they have different reasons for why they're not eligible for any benefit. Right? There's probably our policies, for the most part, it's policies that are not made in favor of the communities that are undocumented. That's what it is. A lot of these individuals have been paying taxes. Right? They have children who are US citizens. They've been here for decades. Right? but there's not an opportunity that's been open or a bill that would enable them to become green card holders or be even placed in a pathway towards residency or citizenship, right? Um, and then you also have individuals that did come with status, but like I mentioned before, they either overstayed their visa and they found themselves without status. And so now they're in the same position. And so 
I think one of the interesting things amongst all of these groups is their vulnerability, right? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a vulnerable community, right? And I'm not saying that they aren't able to take care of themselves. I'm not saying that they don't have any skills or talents. I'm not saying that they're gonna be a, a um, this is a fear that, uh, that's been played out often that um, they're gonna be um, taking, uh, or taking advantage of resources. That is not true. What they share in common is they're very, very hardworking, very hardworking. And what they want is an opportunity to be able to have the same liberties that we have, which is pursuit of happiness, right? Pursuit to attain that uh, ultimate goal of achievement, uh, to feel safe, to care for their families and protect them. Those are all things we share in common. And so I think that's something that we really need to hold, right? Apart from the categories of who they are and where they come from is what we share in common. And so that's a brief synopsis of what these categories are. Thank you. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the biggest misconceptions that I see a lot of times is that as people come here, they're looking for handouts, which seems in my experience to be so opposite of what is true. Um, and yes, everybody needs help when they first come to a country with nothing, um, which is where we step in. Um, so thank you for that. Can you also talk just a little bit about what DACA is? We hear a lot about that, just in case folks aren't familiar with that. Yeah, so deferred action for childhood arrivals. It's interesting because it actually connects with our, our the previous you know short conversation that we had about the undocumented and undocumented. So deferred action for childhood arrivals was actually a protective status. So again, it's a protection, not a status, okay? So we call it protective status, but it's a protection, not a pathway towards residency, um, not uh, a citizenship, nothing. It, it's a protective status, um, and it's actually a protective status from deportation. Now, it doesn't mean that folks cannot be deported, right? I think we have to write, read, read uh, between the lines. Individuals can always be deported without status, right? And a protective status, it just prevents that deportation from happening. Um, if you uh, if you meet all the requirements that have been created uh, within that policy, and so deferred action for childhood arrivals was presented by the uh, Obama administration, uh, which gave an opportunity for individuals who came at a really really young age, right, who are naturally American. Uh, they grew up in the schools that I went to. Uh, they grew up in the schools that your children went to. Um, they want to be astronauts. They want to be doctors. Uh, they are already doctors, actually. They're already lawyers. Uh, they're engineers. They're essential workers during this pandemic. So it's these individuals or these people who've been working extremely, extremely hard, and there's really not an opportunity made available to them. And apart from an opportunity, right, because they already have the skills, they have the talents, they have the innovative ideas, um, what they don't have is an opportunity and they also don't have a policy that supports that uh, or enables or creates a pathway for those skills to be uh, put into practice. And so DACA has been um, made available to many uh, 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 folks who meet certain requirements. Again, you've had to be in the United States prior to your 16th birthday. Um, you also have to have good moral character. You also have to demonstrate um, that you're going to school or you complete it uh, like uh, um, at least uh, you, you hold at least a, a um, high school diploma. So there's a lot of requirements that need to be met before you're actually eligible or even given a decision on that application. And so what's wonderful about that opportunity is that it really puts 
uh, it gives people the opportunity to put into practice their skills. Uh, what's unfortunate about that opportunity, right, is again, it, it creates this category that is put in a silo where their contributions have a glass ceiling, right? Where they're not able to um, vote or hold offices or or even invest more in, into the society, right? And feel more as citizens, as I would call it, as contributors. And so that's what's really unfortunate. But at, for the moment, it does give them the opportunity to work in the United States. Um, and also, I think what's really great that has happened recently is that for a while, only individuals who had applied during the uh, like Obama administration were eligible to continue to renew their work authorization because the program was closed uh, by the previous administration. And so this pendulum effect has happened with DACA um, and it's the program has opened again for initial. And so something that's been really beautiful recently is that you have a lot of kids in high school who are so excited, who tell me stories about how they want to go to a four-year university, who are already planning to enroll in such college, go to Harvard, attend law school, uh, create their own jobs. And I'm just like, wow, this is the America that we all want. This is the America where we all succeed. This is the America where it's, where it's not about like, uh, you know, you take a piece of the pie and therefore there's less of pie for me. No, that's not how it works, right? If somebody else has innovative ideas who can hold a business that can create employment opportunities for the rest of the country, that is a wonderful idea. And so these are the immigrants that we have in the United States. That pendulum swinging is something I wanted to touch on because in 2016, what do you think right now that the churches that we're partnered with and our donors that might be listening in, what, what can they do to help immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers? Yeah, I think, you know, the church holds so much power. We're talking about power. The church holds so much power, right? Uh, you have access to, to, to resources and connections. You're able to um, um, push for certain bills, policies. Um, you're able to inform your members in your congregation about, like, what policies are being introduced, who the community you work with, uh that's being affected are um i mean you have so much power you have so 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 much power and i think being able to sit on that right and that you can really create home right and i think not only creating home but it's like if we're really about loving thy neighbor right uh putting love into action right welcoming the stranger as we are all called to do, right? And I think I have to make it clear, these aren't strangers. They live in our neighborhoods, right? These families like myself, I lived in probably your neighborhood, right? I grew up and went to school with your children, right? We have to think about that. We can't think about it. We cannot equate a person to a political agenda. We cannot do that, not anymore. If we really want change, if we really want to create a pathway or a line, then we need to create that pathway or line. And so the way that the church can really work alongside all of us is, first of all, partner with World Relief, right? Uh, 
as we mentioned before, we have individuals who are working closely with um, policymakers who are being, doing presentations before Congress, um, who have an experience of immigration or migration to the United States, um, who work closely with people who um, have a lot of questions, right? And have been able to answer those questions and mostly questions out of fear, right? Um, and so I think it's important to get educated. It's really important to get educated. And we have those tools. Uh, we have a group of people who are doing policy, like I said. We also have books like Welcoming the Stranger that have been created or written by uh, some of our advocacy experts. And so it's extremely important to really get educated and, and share and, and learn more about this and then engage your congregation in conversation. I think the congregations oftentimes have lots of fears and it is these fears that really um, push us to certain to believe certain things. And out of fear, we vote for policies that actually destroy the country in which we live. And so in order for us to really unify, to heal, to create opportunity, and to um, even in, in, in documenting the undocumented, it's creating security for all of us. And that's not only like security of feeling safe, but security in Medicare, right? Social security, uh, building stronger communities. Like those are all things that we're a part of and we could only make them better if you participate in it. And so um, call World Relief Staff's members, um, hold conversations with your congregation, like I said, uh, have a conversation with your leaders and senators um, and definitely tell them that you want a pathway towards residency and citizenship for the 11 million and counting individuals who are currently living here and are essential workers. Yeah, I hear over and over again from volunteers how their experience, um, just becoming educated, maybe through World Relief, maybe through something else that they've been a part of, and then meeting immigrants in their communities has completely flipped their heart and open their eyes to a whole new a whole new way of thinking. So I think that that piece of that is so important. And if folks are interested in um, calling and uh, speaking with their representatives, you can go to worldrelief.org/advocate, and you can find a lot more information about that there. Um, one last thing before we wrap it up: um, everybody has a story. So I wanted to just ask you, is there someone that you have worked with that has just really touched your heart, recommitted you to this work? Can you tell us? Yeah, so actually, um, there's a story about this gentleman, um, which a lot of pastors have fallen in love with. And, and these are different pastors that went um, to the border, visited the border with uh, Matt Sorens, myself, our previous office director, um, and a lot of staff from headquarters at World Relief. And in one of our meetings, we met with, uh, we met this individual or young man from Venezuela. Uh, this young man has been fleeing persecution because he was uh, pro-democracy um, and really wanted to voice out and implement a system that also protected the rights of the people of Venezuela. And so he was considered a threat by, by, by the, um, the, the Venezuelan regime there. And so ultimately he was uh, beaten and forced to leave the country, right? And in that process, he was immigrating to the United States. It took him about a year or two to get to America, just because again, 
you don't have as many resources or zero resources, you're probably walking a lot of the times um, and, you know, just trying to, to find your ways here. And so um, during that process, there was a lot of laws that were being put, that were being put in place that were preventing asylum seekers from seeking asylum. One of them was the Remain in Mexico program, right? Where if you were an asylum seeker, they would leave you in Mexico, which is so anti-asylum. It's like the total opposite. If you're fleeing your home because there's a fire, you cannot be sent back to your home because there's a fire, right? It's like you're gonna die. And so folks were being forced to remain in Mexico. Um, in addition to that is it, there was a policy, an additional policy that said that if you crossed a country, a safe, uh, a, a country that was considered a safe place country, then that person um, and, and didn't seek asylum there, then that person was also subject to this um, uh, rule where you would not be eligible for asylum. And then the, our favorite one was when seeking asylum, you were given a, a number and, and this was a, 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 a framework that was kind of put in place by both the United States government, well, by the United States and Mexico, whoever those entities are, well, we don't know who they are, but you were supposed to get this number, like almost like at the deli counter and wait to be called and then have an interview with an asylum officer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which within that process, so many laws were put in place that sometimes even if you were in line, line, right? You were forced, you, there were policies that were put in place that ultimately impacted you. And what ended up happening is we, we represented this case and the person was denied asylum. It was so disheartening. The day after Thanksgiving, I had to uh, drive two hours away to uh, San Diego courthouse where the client was not even given the opportunity to really share the full facts of the case. That person, after they were held or after they were deported, they were held in detention for almost six months. I mean, can you, it makes no sense. You're already deported. Why are you being held in a prison for six additional months when you're being detained? Well, fortunately, this person, because of COVID, right, because uh, the, the, the diplomatic relationship, relations or lack of between Mex uh, the United States and Venezuela, they ultimately were released on parole, right? They have an ankle monitor, so they're, 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 they were released um, under the care of a, like a friend or a relative who's a U.S. citizen who could uh, give them housing and stuff. But just the resilience in this gentleman who's only 25 years old and their faith in God and, and, and their vulnerability, but at the same time, the, the same time their strength, right? And, and th this idea like, you know what? All of this could go wrong any moment. If they sent me back to Venezuela, I could be killed. But just having that strong faith, I was like, wow. I, I, you know, it's, it's honestly a miracle that they were released back to the United States after being deported, after being held in detention for six months, right? After leaving in Tijuana, for like three months, having zero resources. And this person is so caring and life-giving. He gives you so much with the little he has. And maybe it's not even the little, I think he has a lot to offer. We just don't give him an opportunity to become a resident. And so I wanna leave you with that story. Our, our, our laws, our policies are so wrong. They're not built to sustain or to create opportunity. And it is up to us to really change that. 
And so I invite you to walk alongside World Relief. I invite you to work alongside, walk with, be with refugees, asylum seekers, undocumented, documented immigrants. I think also it's important to check your facts, right? And in addition to that, see them as human first and then the categories, because the categories are all man-made and they are meaningless sometimes. They only work for immigration practices. Apart from that, at the end of the day, they're just like you and I, they want a better future for themselves, for their families, and they deeply care to be a U.S. citizen even more sometimes than some of us because they will walk thousands and hundreds of miles just to become a citizen of the United States. Yeah, it's really incredible. And I just wanna, I wanna echo what you said about taking the time to educate yourself, to get to know really what this is all about as opposed to just listening to what you hear on the news. Um, thank you, Jose, for being so open and honest about both your own story and also about the work that we're doing, um, the advocacy work that we're, that we're doing. I wanna invite everybody who's listening. Um, Jose mentioned a book called Welcoming the Stranger. I, I'm not pushing the book. Um, I don't get anything from this. But I just wanted to say that I personally read that book. It's by Matt Sorens and Jenny Yang, who also work at World Relief. Um, I read that book when I came to World Relief a year ago, and it was really eye-opening. It talks about the U.S. immigration system, about all the categories, um, and um, I just can't say enough about how informative that book was. So I really highly recommend that book. So thank you, Jose, for being here. So appreciate it, and um, I know there will be more to come. Thank you. And thank you for all the viewers. Uh, I know that all of this might be really dense, but uh, it's an opportunity for us to be counterculture, right? It's an opportunity to really uh, uh, put love into action and welcome people. Um, and so I really encourage you, like Karen said, to really just uh, contact World Relief staff and um, partner with us. Uh, we're excited to engage in a journey of healing in a journey where um, the impossible could actually happen. Um, and it's important to unite the families that have been separated and to create welcome for all of us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Life Across Borders. To learn more about World Relief and get involved, visit www.worldrelief.org. And join us on social media. We are at World Relief on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.